focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our regular Tuesday reporters in Kwonzo and Cheji. Guys, welcome back. Hello. Good evening. Got to start things off with issues here on the Korean Peninsula. Here, North Korean leader Kim Jong Un making his first public appearance in more than a month. Uh, always, uh, when there is a long span of time where he goes kind of uh, on a hiatus, so there's a lot of questions. But uh, he did take place at a big military meeting on Monday. Uh, so, what was the gist of this uh, very meeting? Right. First off, this meeting was an enlarged central military meeting of the ruling Workers' Party uh, that North Korean media reported on on this Tuesday. North Korean leader Kim Jong Un presided over the meeting on Monday, which marked his first public ex- appearance in 36 days. Among participants were top officials like Lee Byung-chol, the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, and Lee Yong-gil, the commander of the People's Army. Now, Leader Kim at the meeting ordered intensified operational training and discussed matters on war readiness, according to the Korean Central News Agency. The KCNA said attendants examined important major military and political tasks for 2023 in depth, as well as long-term concerns involving the orientation for army building. Furthermore, the subject of continuously extending and strengthening the Korean People's Army operations and combat drills in order to address the current circumstances and more severely perfect the preparedness for war was one of the main agenda at the meeting. Uh, The event, meanwhile, came on the eve of a likely military parade in commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Korea People's Army, uh, the military force of the North and the armed wing of the Workers' Party. And there are signs of preparations for that parade. According to NK Pro, a research platform on North Korea, those preparations appear evident in satellite imagery, photographs, as well as video obtained by NK Pro. Soldiers and citizens were said to have been preparing in the bitter cold for months. And the nighttime parade is, it's usually a nighttime parade, mm-hmm. and it's expected to be vast in scope and t- to feature tens of thousands of participants, including over 130,000 marching soldiers. Large rockets will probably also pass through the capital, Pyongyang. Uh, Meanwhile, North Korea announced on Monday that it would examine agricultural development at a party plenary meeting later this month. And observers say uh, the North's decision to call such a conference in less than two months indicates that it has a pressing need to address ongoing food shortages. So regarding um, the expectations of this kind of plenary meeting and then the recent one, Yang Mujin, uh, president of the University of North Korean Studies, said uh, the North appears to take a two-track approach in implementing this year's policy goals, strengthening defense capabilities and enhancing people's livelihoods. Well, Professor Yang Mujin is now the president of University of yeah, North Korean like... Studies. We've been following his analysis yeah. for uh, <laughs> many, many years. Uh, but obviously this is a uh, quite concerning right now and uh, you are right i mean there i think there are bigger concerns right now in the north in the north i mean they say that they're you know stepping up their uh, war readiness posture and of course by them saying this they're ready to boost up their defense
appearances as if the United States or South Korea is going to, uh, you know, go into North Korea and start a war here, which obviously is not going to happen. But the bigger, obviously, concern right now over in North Korea is, again, the ongoing food shortages. I believe there's also speculations that uh, there's uh, North Korea preparing for a resurgence in COVID-19 cases mm -hmm. as well. Uh, but the fact that, again, we've been mentioning more and more signs of the three parties, uh, South Korea, United States, and North Korea, not willing to hold any sort of dialogue in the near future. Uh, this is another proof of it because now they seem to be really just boosting up their military right now, as if to say there is going to be no further negotiations. And I also find it quite interesting that they always hold these uh, military parades at night because, I mean, the, I think at the, the analysis is like they're trying to hide as much information as possible with their military goods, but at the same time, they're trying to show off their military mm. power. So I don't understand why they do it at night. But nevertheless, uh, when it does happen, we'll closely look at it and what new potential uh, military hardware they'll be showcasing there. Uh, in the meantime, North Korea recently establishing a new department. Uh, this is concerning. This is called the, uh, the Missile General Bureau. Uh, and this is also to enhance war preparedness. Uh, let's hear more about the role and duties of this uh, organization. You have more on this, Jihee. Right. So North Korean state media photos of the earlier mentioned commission meeting showed signs of this newly established department called, like you said, the Missile General Bureau. Uh, the photos had a flag representing this new body. It had the name of the bureau written in Korean, uh, reflecting how the commission had discussed the possibility of organizational changes to improve and strengthen military affairs fundamentally. Now, this Missile General Bureau had never been reported through the regime's state media before, so this is the first time its representative flag appeared in one of these photos. And the symbol or mark of the flag depicted a missile, oh, which, wow. mm, which looks like the ICBM Hwasong-17 flying above the Earth. <laughs> And at the upper part of this flag is a number that possibly represents the year of the Bureau's uh, establishment, which is uh, possibly 2016. So it says it reads 016. However, the Missile General Brew seems to be a separately expanded administrative organization from what used to exist before. And some analysts say that the new department could possibly direct the whole development of nuclear warheads and ballistic systems. Yeah, I'm just uh, taking a look at this, uh, mm, the, the Missile General Bureau. It's called the, the Missile Chungguk, uh, is what they're calling. And uh, this is the, uh, I'm looking at the... Uh, what do you call it? The uh, the symbol? Uh, the flag. The flag mm. of which looks very much like NASA's uh, <laughs> symbols. But yeah, it does seem like the ICBM is basically going above what seems to be Earth right now. Uh, again, when you hear news like this, I mean, it is uh, very concerning right now, uh, which is why you have the top nuclear envoys from both the South Korea and the United States having whole talks on uh, bilateral cooperation and countering North Korea's missile and weapons of mass destruction development. So what uh, you have the details of this. Right. The meeting between South Korea's special representative for Korean Peninsula Peace and Security Affairs, Kim Gon, and U.S. Special Representative for North Korea, Song Kim, 
was held on February 2nd during the trip to Washington by Park Jin, Seoul's foreign minister. Uh, but South Korea's foreign ministry and the U.S. State Department both reported uh, on this meeting this Monday. Uh, they said the two discussed ways to respond to North Korea's unlawful ballistic missile and uh, WMD development, as well as cooperation on dealing with Pyongyang's malicious cyber activities. The two Kims shared views on the current situation on the Korean peninsula and voiced profound concern over Pyongyang's defiance of repeated requests for engagement from Seoul and Washington. Uh, they also urged the international community to fully implement the UN Security Council resolutions on the north and to put pressure on Pyongyang to stop its provocative and dangerous actions. The officials also put emphasis on how important it is to educate the general public and other nations about the risks posed by the North's illegal cyber activities, which include money theft from other countries to fund Kim Jong-un and his regime. The two also stressed the need to prioritize the welfare of the North Korean people and called on Pyongyang to grant more access to the country by international aid agencies. Following the diplomatic meetings in Washington, uh, which also, again, includes the one um, between uh, Park Jin and his uh, counterpart, mm. Tony Blinken, that would yeah, Anthony Blinken, Tony Blinken, yeah, yes. yeah. And uh, U.S. Deputy Special Representative for North Korea, Tong Bak, had discussions with her South Korean counterpart, Lee Junil, on Monday as she made a trip to Seoul after the trip by the officials to uh, the U.S. Uh, Follow-up measures on last week's meetings were discussed, and they also shared their assessments on the likely military parade in North Korea. That's coming up, probably. Yeah, and again, uh, the consensus right now, there's going to be a lot of uh, movements from North Korea this year, uh, especially because if you remember all of last Last year, we're sort of predicting when is North Korea going to be conducting the seventh nuclear test. Uh, and uh, now, of course, experts are saying that it's probably pushed to this year. Uh, North Korea is probably seeing any sort of signs that maybe... I think if there is any hope that there is going to be some kind of dialogue uh, between the United States and North Korea, it's probably after they conduct their seventh nuclear test. And I think North Korea right now, they need to use this as a leverage and going, look, this is how far we're able to develop our nuclear weapons. And this is how dangerous we are. So if you don't want to face this, let's start negotiating right now. We're on the flip side. That might not be a very good technique because if you conduct the seventh nuclear test, I'm sure there's going to be more sanctions from the United States. There's definitely going to be a UN Security Council uh, resolution being passed this time around because even Russia and China can't say no uh, to you know North Korea conducting a nuclear test. So a lot of big things right now, but so far from all the things, all the developments, all the movement we've seen uh, from the dialogue between South Korea and the United States and all the meetings and the developments from North Korea, it doesn't seem like at this time any of the three parties are uh, willing to hold talks here. Guys, uh, let's move on here to the ongoing, uh, I guess, developments over in Turkey and uh, parts of Syria. We're talking about that powerful earthquake, which, by the way, uh, that was back-to-back earthquakes, right? That was a 7.8 mm-hmm. magnitude earthquake, and that was followed by, I believe, a 7.4 or a 7.5 magnitude earthquake, not to mention, I believe, there was aftershocks of, uh, you know, four or more magnitude all throughout Turkey. Uh, we've been following closely at the uh, death toll combined in Turkey and Assyria. Number continues to go up. Uh, earlier this morning, when I had a chance to look at this, it was uh, something around uh, 3,000 approaching 4,000. Now, they're saying it's above 
5,000. Uh, but that might not even be the final death toll because the WHO said earlier that uh, it might go up eight folds, which is something around the, over 20,000 is what they're expecting right now. Nevertheless, uh, let's get the latest updates on this uh, devastating earthquake in uh, Turkey and uh, Syria. G, you have more on this. Right. So this earthquake, as we've reported briefly yesterday, uh, was the magnitude of 7.8, and it hit southeastern Turkey and parts of Syria in the early hours of the morning of February 6th. And the event was closely followed by numerous aftershocks, including one other quake. Uh, it was a it was with a magnitude of 7.5, that is. Mm. And in fact, more than 60 aftershocks were recorded as, as well. And it was a big, devastating earthquake uh, classified as major on the official mag magnitude scale. It broke along uh, about 100 kilometers of the fault line, causing serious damage to buildings near that fault as well. And uh, of the deadliest earthquakes in any given year, only two in the last 10 years have been of equivalent magnitude and four in the previous 10 years. However, it's not just the powerful tremor, the power of this earthquake that caused the whole devastation. As we know, the incident occurred in the early hours of the morning. So this is when people were inside homes and buildings basically sleeping and they didn't have the chance to evacuate. Uh, and also the sturdiness of the buildings is also uh, pointed to as a critical factor yeah, of yeah. the whole devastation. Well, Turkey and Syria's buildings have always been known to be very vulnerable to earthquakes, and things have been made worse by war as well. And regarding the casualty updates, uh, this I checked it just before the show, about 15 to 20 minutes before. And according to Turkish authorities, they've confirmed the uh, deaths of more than 5,000 people on either side of the Turkey-Syria border with thousands injured. So as of now, at least 3,419 people were killed in Turkey and 1,600 people uh, have been confirmed uh, to have been died in Syria as well. And currently more more than 24,000 people are involved in search and rescue. And uh, the response teams of both countries reported that 5,775 buildings have at least uh, been flattened across several cities as well. Well, things are looking worse with the fire as well in the containers on the Mediterranean Sea, which were overturned by the earthquake as it continues for the second day. Well, time is running out to save hundreds of families still trapped under these ruins of destroyed buildings. Uh, and every second matters when it comes to saving lives and all humanitarian organizations were called on to provide support. And also uh, there are difficult situ uh, conditions and uh, it's very frustrating, the rescue efforts. And it's also because of the harsh weather, the freezing temperatures aren't helping the whole uh, search and rescue. And according to an official with Turkey's Disaster Management Authority, uh, as of now, almost at least uh, 7,800 people have been rescued across 10 provinces so far. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the uh, the cold weather conditions that's mm. uh, really hampering the uh, the search and rescue operations as well. But when you're talking about something like 16 aftershocks, right? And these aftershocks, usually like the aftershocks, uh, they're small. But I mean, a lot of the aftershocks felt in uh, Turkey, it's there was a large number of them which were like magnitude four or more. Uh, and I think the other big concern was the fact that uh, 
uh, Turkey right now, they're they're uh, building, they're constructing a, a nuclear power plant, the Akuyu uh, power plant. It's still in construction, and so the big question was whether or not there was going to be some kind of uh, you know devastating impact from what we saw, like for example, like in Fukushima. Mm -hmm. uh, they're saying that you know the area in which the power plant is being built, they registered something like 3.0 magnitude. So it wasn't big enough to that it caused any kind of damage, but I believe uh, the IAEA is also watching very closely as to whether or not there's any kind of significant damage and whether or not they'll continue on with this construction here. But so uh, again, as she mentioned, Turkey is particularly prone to these earthquakes. And unfortunately, it seems like historically, when you th see a lot of these earthquakes that happen in Turkey, it's huge. And judging by the construction and sort of the architecture and the houses kind of built in and around uh, Turkey, it's not prone to, it's not able to withstand a major earthquake like this. So let's talk about these past incidents and why they continue to happen in these uh, very region. Right. Uh, earthquakes frequently shake the country. And according to the Disaster and Emergency Management Authority, there were approximately 33,000 earthquakes in the area in year 2020. Now, you might be um, shocked by this number, but uh, it counts in all the smaller earthquakes as well. Uh, but 332 earthquakes of a magnitude of 4.0 or higher just Jeez. happened in that year. Uh, Turkey's tectonic location has a lot to do with its earthquake susceptibility. So it's going to get a little technical. About 15 large slabs called tectonic plates make up the Earth's topmost layer, and the boundaries between between the plates are referred to a system of faults or fractures between two blocks of rocks. And an abrupt movement along these faults is what can cause earthquakes. And Turkey, Turkey is situa situated on the Anatolian tectonic plate, and that's wedged between the Eurasian, Eurasian and African plates. And on its northern side, there is a minor Arabian plate that limits movement. So according to the British Archaeological Survey, the meeting point of the Eurasian and Anatolian tectonic plates is, quote, particularly devastating. And uh, so going back to the past incidents, some of the uh, major ones, in 1999, two devastating earthquakes of 7.4 and 7.0 magnitude killed almost 18,000 people and more than 45,000 were injured. In 2011, there was a 7.1 magnitude quake that killed more than 500 people. Uh, experts say almost all of the country is seismically active, so these massive destructive earthquakes can happen anytime. Yeah, again, I mean, uh, even here in South Korea, we do experience like these minor mm. earthquakes, right? But the faults, uh, it's because it's close to, for example, like the defaults uh, look into the ring of fire, right? Uh, but it's, I remember learning this in middle school, and I, I remember learning this because of the 1999 earthquake in Turkey. I remember this exactly. Uh, I was in middle school at the time, I think I was in eighth grade, uh, and uh, basically what they were explaining, they were explaining the, the, the tectonic plates, right? So basically it's faults, and then when they're moving and they grind each other, mm -hmm. that's causing basically the major earthquakes. And so some areas have bigger faults. Uh, for example, the San Andreas Fault, uh, located in California, is a big one, which is why California is a very earthquake the Ring of Fire in Japan's very earthquake prone as well. Uh, and so, you know, Turkey, unfortunately, because of the location and the, the size of their uh, fault is when they do have these earthquakes, you can pretty much expect these major, major 
earthquakes, unfortunately, the way that their architecture is built, it's not like, like Japan, right? Like when Japan, because Japan knows that they're also very much earthquake prone, what they do is they build earthquake proof uh, buildings. Uh, unfortunately, many of the people in Turkey don't live in earthquake prone, uh, what is it, earthquake proof uh, buildings, nor do they have the capacity to build any of that, which is why it's so concerning when you have these uh, massive uh, earthquakes that are taking place here. Well, the international community certainly trying all they can to lend a helping hand for Turkey. Uh, President Yoon Sagir ordering the government to swiftly send rescue workers and medical assistance to help the country in the aftermath of this very tragic natural disaster. Uh, government is also considering sending a Korean tanker transport aircraft to assist what we've long considered, if you remember the 2002 World Cup, uh, we called each other the brother nation. Uh, some of us, I remember, uh, had uh, friends from Turkey when I was a kid. Uh, blood brothers is what mm -hmm. we used to call them as well. Jihi, you have the details of this. Mm -hmm. So a day after this devastating earthquake uh, struck Turkey and Syria, President Yoon instructed officials to provide help to the brother nation in its recovery from this earthquake by sending rescue workers and medical supplies. Uh, Yoon expressed his deep condolences to the people who lost their lives during a cabinet meeting at the government complex in Sejong. And also referring to Turkey uh, fighting alongside South Korea during the Korean War, he went on to say Turkey is a brother nation that sent a large number of troops without hesitation when we were under a communist invasion in 1950 and defended our freedom. Now, Yoon instructed the chief of staff Kim Dae-gi and national security advisor Kim Sung-han to prepare emergency assistance measures for Turkey ahead of the cabinet meeting and said that it's the only obvious thing to do because we've received so much in mm -hmm. the past as well. According to Seoul's foreign ministry, the government plans to offer 5 million U.S. dollars in emergency humanitarian assistance to Turkey and dispatch around 110 workers in total to support rescue work. And in line with the instruction, around 60 members of an international rescue team considered among the best in the world will be sent as well to Turkey along with 50 military personnel, according to this senior presidential secretary uh, for press affairs, Kimune. Now, the previous day, Yoon also ordered the presidential national security office and the foreign ministry to come up with active measures to uh, provide humanitarian assistance to not only Turkey, but also Iran, because Iran was also hit by a 5.9 magnitude earthquake late last month, uh, which killed at least three and incurred more than uh, injured, excuse me, more than 800. And the South Korean military is also considering sending a KC-330 military tanker transport aircraft along with rescue workers. Uh, the military mobilized this aircraft in past emergency humanitarian assistance operations, including the humanitarian mission in 2021, uh, which was to evacuate nearly 400 Afghan co-workers and family members to South Korea. Yeah, we can't stress enough how much assistance we got from the soldiers of Turkey back in 1950 when the Korean War uh, broke out. And again, it is something that it's still deeply rooted in our 
uh, country till today uh, and in our culture as well. And so in times like this, uh, certainly all the assistance that we can send over uh, will be going over to Turkey. But as I mentioned, uh, it's not just South Korea. A large number of the uh, countries around the world uh, trying to help in all their capacity there. And this, of course, uh, apart from South Korea, as she mentioned here. Uh, so what support measures are coming into Turkey and Syria from other countries? Well, nations from all over the world are hurrying to provide rescue workers, equipment, and other kinds of aid to the affected regions in Turkey and Syria. Uh, from the U.S., for instance, uh, when uh, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, he said the U.S. will send, quote, any and all aid needed. The European Union mobilized rescue personnel from a number of countries, including France, Greece, Hungary, Malta, the Netherlands, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Croatia, uh, the Czech Republic, and the UK. Uh, separately, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak vowed their governments were ready to help. Uh, and uh, Greece was also among the first to offer help uh, with its Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis tweeting, Greece is mobilizing its resources and will assist immediately. Uh, now, this part being especially uh, significant, I would have to say, because there is a quite there are quite some disputes between um, Turkey and uh uh, Greece, uh, but uh, in cases of earthquakes, Greece was uh, very quick to respond uh, when it comes to humanitarian aid. And then there is also Sweden and Finland, uh, which have offered their help, and they have also currently issues with Turkey because of a, a NATO bid issue. Mm. Uh, so what I want to say is here, uh, when it comes to this support, all countries are uh, trying to help, no matter what kind of relations they are having with Turkey or Syria. Uh, Israel also sent search and rescue teams as well as medical aid or or vowed to do so and then we've also got Ukraine that's offering support although it is currently having uh, needs a lot of help yeah, from other yeah. countries then there's also Russia that offered support to the affected regions Iraq said it's going to send civil defense teams with relief supplies including food and fuel uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, said it's going to set up a field hospital uh, in the areas India uh, said it's uh, sending 100 personnel with specially trained dogs. China said it is willing to provide emergency humanitarian aid uh, in accordance with the needs of the affected population. And then Japan, another country often affected by earthquakes, as right. we mentioned before, promised to send around 75 rescue workers. I tried to mention as many countries as possible yeah. here, but probably there are um, more other countries that followed suit. So... Um some of the questions that uh, were coming up was, for example, there's a lot of mention of countries assisting Turkey, but uh, not a lot of countries assisting Syria. Right? One of the questions was, why uh, did President Yun Sagir mention that uh, there was going to be assistance for not just Turkey, but Iran, but there was no mention of Syria? Now, diplomatically, I think some people are saying that because South Korea and Syria, they don't have any diplomatic relations. Uh, they haven't established any diplomatic relations. Now, so uh, you made a very good point. Uh, Greece and Turkey uh, did have some clashes here and there, right, diplomatically, but they're setting this all aside. And so 
one of the things that it, uh, it was a little bit unfortunate was that so much assistance going into Turkey and even with the EU, I think that most of the, the all the EU countries are kind of focusing their rescue and operation, all that assistance to Turkey. Uh, and Turkey, by the way, they did uh, themselves personally uh, request assistance uh, for uh, EU to come in and help out and things like that. But I'm hope, also hoping that because there was a lot of devastation, a lot of uh, casualties in Syria, that they overlook some of the diplomatic differences for Syria as well. And some assistance is being sent over uh, to that country is uh, what we're hoping. And this is one of those times, again, you just got to leave out all the diplomatic uh, differences aside and really help out and come together as a global community here. Uh, speaking of coming together, Let's move on here. EU leaders, uh, they're going to be gathering in Brussels on Thursday for a summit. Uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky expected to be there as well. Uh, let's hear more about this, Chihi. Right. So a European Union official has confirmed that there's an open invitation to President Volodymyr Zelensky to visit Brussels for the upcoming summit among the bloc's leaders. And the EU is preparing for the president's potential visit. Now, the European Council chief has invited Zelensky to take part in the future summit of the 27 EU nations, according to uh, the spokesperson. However, no further information was provided for security reasons. And a source at the European Parliament said there was the likelihood of an extraordinary plenary session on Thursday, which is February 9th, with the presence of uh, Vladimir Zelensky. And if it goes ahead, the visit would be the first made by Zelensky to the EU since Russia invaded uh, the country almost a year ago. And since Moscow launched its all-out assault on February 24th last year, the Ukrainian leader has so far made only one trip abroad, and that was to Washington in December. Uh, but the Euro Ukrainian presidency did not confirm this visit yet. Yeah, not to mention we know that the uh, the European Union is uh, ready to slap their tenth uh, package of sanctions uh, against Russia. And uh, that, I believe, is going to be implemented on February 24th, marking the one-year anniversary. And so maybe uh, talks on what kind of sanctions, further sanctions will be applied uh, to Russia and what other further assistance being made to Ukraine as well. Uh, in the meantime, U.S. President Joe Biden is set to deliver his annual State of the Union address uh, this on Tuesday local time. So uh, what do you think it will be the significance in this speech and uh, what is also expected to be contained in it? Right. Tuesday's State of the Union address by President Joe Biden to Congress comes at a critical time in his presidency, especially as it appears likely that he will launch a run for re-election next year. Uh, the address offers a high-profile platform from which he can make his case to the American people, the media, and important players uh, within the Democratic Party. But uh, what's expected to be at the center of attention is an immense uh, pressure that Biden will face regarding the issue of a Chinese spy balloon and the U.S.'s response to it uh, as it shot it down that have been dominating headlines in past days. Uh, what Biden wants to talk about in more detail, according to assessments made by media, is a focus on his achievements he made in the first two years of his presidency, including a wide range of of important laws. Just to mention a few of those, uh, $1 trillion in climate and healthcare legislation, as well as $1.9 trillion for coronavirus relief package uh, that included a program that cut the percentage of U.S. children living in poverty in half. 
He also is certainly going to highlight the uh, bipartisan legislation passed on issues like infrastructure funding, technological investment, and gun control. Uh, Biden is also expected to argue that the economy is growing under his leadership by highlighting most recent data on job growth, inflation, and energy prices, uh, which have been declining from high levels last seen in the early 1980s. But it's just going to be a few, some hours from now that we will Uh, actually get to hear what he's going to say. So probably more updates tomorrow. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are watching very carefully in that because the Biden administration, Joe Biden, has been uh, really heavily criticized over that Chinese spy balloon thing. But again, I'm not making... You know, I, I don't. I haven't fully supported a lot of what uh, you know Joe Biden has done diplomatically, uh, especially when it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act. But you know, he did have a very good reason uh, to why it took him so long to shoot down that quote-unquote weather balloon, aka spy uh, balloon from China. Again, they were saying that the size of it is like three buses, right? And so if you shoot it down and it falls, the debris falls on like a residential area, there could be, uh, you know, casualties. It could be some kind of injuries, damages to the residential areas. And I think the same because uh, if you remember the North Korean drones, right, that, mm-hmm. that entered the, the South Korean airspace, mm-hmm. my biggest criticism at the time initially was that the South Korean Air Force and the military could not shoot it down, right? They weren't able to intercept it. They couldn't do anything. They got away and things like that. But after talking to uh, one of the experts in regards to it, what he said was it probably was better off. Number one, it was it was not a lethal. It wasn't a like a fighting drone, right? It didn't have any missile capabilities or anything like that. It was a spy drone. Uh, and probably the military assessed that by firing at the drones, and especially because it was flying around like residential areas. I mean, it was in Seoul and things like that. It went near the, the presidential office, apparently. And so if they shoot it, try to shoot it down, they miss. There is a very good chance of damaging residential areas and places like that. So they had to be safe. And so that was sort of the same thing that Biden said was, look, we were just waiting until we went over to the open sea and right. shot it down. I mean, it's not like we didn't. But, of course, the Republicans are going to then argue, that, well, throughout that time, uh, that they had this uh, sh- uh, the, the 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 spy balloon. They probably got enough uh, you know information and things like that. And then now the Democrats are you know responding with well during the uh, Trump administration those three spy balloons that you guys never really talked about and reported. Now all of a sudden 2023 everyone is going to be talking about spy balloons because it seems like it's been uh, an issue before. Now it's just being uh, brought in. Uh, Nate Nate Burtonton says. It wasn't a balloon, it was a space station. Well, whatever it is, you know, it's now the big talk right now. And speaking of which, uh, China stepping up its condemnation against the U.S. for shooting uh, what they called was a weather balloon. It was a civilian weather balloon, they said, and you shooting it down, that's breaching international law, according to China. A formal protest was reportedly made by summoning the U.S. ambassador to China. Jay, you have more on this. Right. So Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, Xie Feng lodged a formal diplomatic protest with the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, according to this statement, which was newly released by the Chinese Foreign Ministry on Monday. Uh, The vice minister said China will resolutely safeguard the legitimate rights and interests of the company concerned and reserves the right to make further responses if necessary to the action taken by the U.S. And she has said uh, the U.S. had obviously overreacted and seriously violated the spirit of the international law and practice. 
Uh, the Chinese foreign ministry sharpened its rhetoric on Sunday after an American F-22 shot down this balloon, as we said, and sent it into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, China had confirmed that the airship was a civilian airship for research purposes that had deviated far from its planned course. Uh, but such moves, like all the, all the airship and the protests, don't seem to bond well for the possible thawing of the two countries' relations, uh, which has been in its worst in decades. And the lost opportunity of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China caused by the balloon incident may also be difficult to recreate. And on Monday, Foreign Minister, uh, Foreign, the Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said that China has been communicating with the U.S. and demanded that it appropriately deal with the current situation in a, in a calm and professional manner, uh, avoiding any miscalculation or misunderstanding, and also refraining from harming mutual trust of the two countries. Yeah, I mean, the, the other argument then, right, I mean, speaking of communication-wise, if indeed what China is saying is true and that it was a civilian weather balloon and things like that and it's just kind of straight and uh, you know they went to places that it wasn't supposed to go then what they should have done was then hey listen we have this weather balloon right now that it just kind of went off course I just want to let you guys know that it's gone off course and it's in your air territory we do apologize right now we're going to do all we can to take that back but instead there was no mention of that right and and then that's the other thing it's if you go into uh other person's airspace there's got to be some kind of communication because there was a lack of communication in the standpoint of the united states you're going to say well that's a spy balloon and then you know they were saying that also china was like oh we can't control it but there was like mm -hmm. propeller and stuff like that and they were saying there was technology within the the quote-unquote weather balloon that is not on par with weather balloons this is going to be going on for a while because now all of a sudden there's so many reports of weather balloons i believe like somewhere in latin america they were also reporting like a weather balloon or or suspected weather balloon aka spy balloons that were uh, seen before and so this probably wasn't the first time that china mm -hmm. has sent uh, these balloons there but we'll see what happens uh nevertheless guys thank you very much for coming in today with your report stay safe as always and we'll see you guys again thank you thank you you can listen to korea now with me sj lee by downloading the arirang radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com so make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.